A brilliant journalist was on assignment in one of the safest countries in the world. While interviewing an internationally known inventor about his eccentric creations, she had no idea she was spending time with a violent psychopath. This week's episode is The Murder of Kim Wall, Part 1. Up, bump in the night, your heart fills with dread. Probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon, or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinisterhood. I'm gonna kill you. Well, this is definitely one of those cases where I feel very connected to this, uh, the subject of today, Kim Wall. It's tragic. This is one that um, I think this is one of the worst we've covered. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that getting into it. So as everything kept unraveling and just when you think it can't possibly get any worse. Oh, but it can. This is truly the stuff nightmares are made out of and two documentaries have done a really good job of, of covering the story and also paying tribute to her life because her family like we always say you're not defined by the worst day of your life and her family has really dedicated their own lives to showing people that kim was way more than what uh the grisly end of her life was and that that's how they want her remembered definitely they've preserved her legacy and in fact carrying on the legacy so we'll uh, we hope you'll fall in love with her like we did when researching this you just you find sometimes these because she was a journalist and a writer and there's footage of her she very much comes to life mm-hmm. and then when we juxtapose it with part more so the things that happened in part two it it somehow makes it even somehow even more visceral and real and horrifying and this was voted on by our patrons in the getting into it here. So thank you all for that in kind of going piggybacking on our docuary that we're doing throughout February, where every week we watch a documentary and then we live stream at 2 p.m. Central and discuss it. And patrons can watch along beforehand and discuss with this or just hear about it and then watch it. But we wanted to kind of piggyback on that. So all the choices this month were current documentaries that are on Netflix. And this one won out. A lot of people want to know her story and, and who she was. It dovetails well with all the other documentaries we talked about because we have this thread and that that's the purpose of storytelling at all in a medium, but especially in journalism, documentary production, things like that, that you decide the true I don't want to say hero of a story, but you kind of when your family, your descendants can control the narrative or preserve your legacy in that way. It's taking something which we'll talk about her parents feelings on it, but it's taking something that seems overwhelming and at least being able to turn that suffering into something that might be able to help other people. Yeah, her family is man, they've been put through the ringer and bless them in the way they, they've handled everything and just the love that they continue to have for their daughter, but also each other to help get themselves through all of this. Most definitely. Well, we're breaking this up into two because it's just, there's so much to it. And we really wanted to do justice to 
talking about who Kim was as a person. So this first one, we're going to do just that um, and kind of just how things started to begin. And then the second one, we'll get more into um, the crime and the trial and subsequent things. Also, I will say this for part one, you will start to see little things that you go, oh, that was strange. Mm -hmm. And individually, the all many, many individuals that had just small, strange things as you listen and you start to put those in your backpack, you're like, oh, that, oh, that on top of that. And then a picture starts to come forward of what this person truly was like. Yeah. Peter Madsen. Yeah. Yes. Well, I'm Christy. I'm Heather. And let's get into it. Peter Madsen was born in Denmark on January 12th, 1971. His parents, Carl and Annie, had a large age gap. Annie was in her 20s, and Carl was 36 years her senior in his 60s. That wasn't the only major difference between the couple. Annie was a religious woman, while Carl was violent, abusive, and domineering, specifically to Annie and her three sons from a previous relationship. Eventually, the abuse became too much, and Annie left the home with her three older sons. Peter, now six years old, was left to live with his father. It was during this time that Peter began experimenting with explosives, an interest shared and supported by his father, despite having no formal training. Peter would later recall to documentarians that his father also taught him how to spoof authorities. Don't I don't have a six-year-old, but I don't imagine explosives are inappropriate. Yeah, Toy. Uh, Ella's five. I'm sure shit not giving her any explosives to play with. Carl was very abusive, controlling. Uh, he had spent time in Germany during the war, uh, seemingly on the Nazi side of things. Yeah, he was on the bad side. Yeah, so you see quickly that this was not a loving man. In fact, he was he was quite the opposite, and. Peter is left with him at a very young age, and that's going to shape how you are for the rest of your life. Most definitely. And even before they split up, they said that Carl would be heinous to P Peter's three older half-brothers. But then Peter was kind of this you know, golden child mm -hmm. or the chosen one, preferred. And you can see as he grows into an adult of this, I am the star. Yeah. It is all about me. And we see exactly where that seed was planted. Very little um, consequences to actions. Definitely the main character and everything. And just the arrogance and just self-righteousness is just nauseating from this it dude. That's a great word for it, nauseating. He's, he thinks so, so highly of himself when in reality he's a narcissist psychopath who has very little talent, but... He's charming and convincing, and I think that that would also be said of um, maybe not the charming part, but all the other stuff of his dad. Yeah, you get apple don't fall far from the mm -hmm. tree. In time, Annie began living with another man. As far as Carl was concerned, this ended any possibility of Annie having a relationship with Peter. Later, Peter told biographer Thomas Jersing that his parents were waging a war using their child as a weapon. It's a war when you tell your six-year-old child, you can always visit your mother, but if you do, don't come back. From this, Madsen developed a hatred for his mother, which extended to women in general, according to Jersing. 
Well, and you know, you don't know what all kinds of things, parental alienation type of things, Carl saying, oh, your mom doesn't love you. She left you for another man, whatever negative things about women, about, well, she had another husband and she had one now. There's becomes this threat of sexism. Women aren't uh, really good for anything but sex. They're for your own enjoyment. Throw them away when you're done. Yeah. Very misogynistic, um, dehumanizing women. Peter said his father was also very jealous sexually. Um, Mm -hmm. So especially when you're in your 60s, your wife's in your 20s, I imagine that there's a lot of things you got to, a lot of differences in those two age brackets. Mm -hmm. So if you have a 20-year-old wife, one, you're in your 60s and you have a 20-year-old wife, that in and of itself is uh, kind of a red flag. Uh, And then when you see just how sexist and misogynistic and gross he is, you really start to see, well, this guy shouldn't be raising a kid. And we can probably see how he's going to turn out. Oh, yeah. With no supervision, especially no other input. It's all him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Authoritarian. I am the final say. And you pass that on to that kid. It's a recipe. Yeah. As a teenager, Peter continued experimenting with explosives, eventually trying his hand at rockets. Though he studied engineering and welding in school, he never obtained a formal degree. Through his studies, he learned how to build submarines and went on to complete three of them. His final sub, a 59-foot-long black hulking mass called Nautilus UC-3, took its maiden voyage in 2008, costing $200,000 Nautilus was the largest privately owned submarine ever built. Peter later told documentarian Emma Sullivan. On the Nautilus, I began to realize that everything is possible, that even the most unimaginable dream could be turned into a reality if you decide enough. When we were at your house watching this and you just kept going, can you just have a submarine? It's uh, okay. First of all, never been to Denmark. It seems like a wonderful country. It's known as one of the safest countries in the world, one of the most progressive. But man, are their laws way different than the United States. And we'll talk more about that in episode two, specifically the fact that you can legally lie on the stand in a court of law. Yeah, that's an interesting. It's very interesting. Everybody's got their own way of doing things. This, I I don't know of anyone in the United States, and there might be, that is a private submarinist. I mean, I could see Elon Musk being like, I'm making a submarine and just putting it in the ocean. He's flying shit to space, so it's not that far off. It's just the opposite direction. (laughs) Well, and as we'll see, Peter's trying to go up, too. Yeah. All these eccentric white men just trying to go to places they don't belong. Right. Well, and it's this, it does give you some insight into the deep cavernous hole within them that they're trying to fill with accomplishments, achievements, attention. That it really, when you take away Elon or this guy's rockets, submarines, you're not really anything except for a person who got a bunch of buddies, smart people. You were charming Mm -hmm. and enough to lure smart people, or in Elon's case, buy smart people. And have them build the thing you have the idea about. But it's like, you're not some genius that built it. Like, he had people around him helping him build stuff. So he was smart enough to assemble a good team. But you do see that that's like his whole identity is like, I'm just, I'm going to take it to the next level. Well, you aren't really going to take it to the next level. You're going to get people to help Mm -hmm. you to go to the next level. But he wanted to take that 
on as, oh, I'm the genius that built this alone. Get the credit for it. Yeah. It was also pointed out in an article I read, which I found very interesting and insightful, that all of the things Peter begins to build are womb-like. Oh, that's fascinating. They're very, like the submarine, the rocket, very small and compassed. I mean, he said he felt like the safest he's ever felt underwater in the submarine. I thought that was very poignant that there's a lot of mommy issues. And now he's seeking out things that perhaps make him feel secure in in a womb type situation. Dr. Christie is on the case. Well, that is Dr. New Yorker, I believe, is where I read that. But on. no, that's so. But you, when you're putting that all together, I never would have even that, that didn't ever even occur to me. But now that you say it, especially if you do have this issue with females mm-hmm. and it's like, are you trying to be reborn? Like, what is that obsession with going and being because you'd lost that at a pretty young age? It's a pretty important stage of development, feeling that, that feeling. Yeah. Of holding mom can hold you. And I imagine growing up with a Nazi, they're not cozy or no, cuddly. I don't think they're very loving. And this is probably something completely, you know, subconscious to Peter. But yeah, wanting to feel safe and secure, I think, is something that he longed for and he sought it out in these types of ways. Fascinating. Peter told documentarians that it was also during his time piloting the Nautilus that he decided his next venture would be to finally go into space aboard his own self-made rocket. So in both of the documentaries that are currently out about this on HBO and Netflix, the Netflix one, it was in this one that he says to documentarian Emma Sullivan, it's a national priority that Peter gets to space. He's he's speaking in the third person one, so fuck off. But also, why? What do you think you're going to do up there? <laughs> Jimmy's got to go to the moon. Jimmy, don't keep Jimmy from his rocket. Why are you speaking in third person? And is it he is a piece of shit. They probably want to get him off the planet. But what does he think he's going to do up there? First of all, you're not going to a planet. You're going up and coming right back down like everybody else does. So what, what are you going to discover? It's just... More of the uh, examples of just such self-righteousness and self-importance that he thinks he's on this path to be this revolutionary, when in reality, it's just kind of the whole operation is very chaotic. He's not a good organizer. He's not a, a good planner. He can't keep people on task. I mean, it really is all of these volunteers around him that get anything done, and then he just kind of oversees it. Yeah, he likes to walk around and touch things a little bit on the table and kind of go, all right, you guys working hard? All right, looks good. And then go in the other room or, are you doing that thing I told you to do? Oh, good, good. Oh, oh, that's even better. Okay, thanks. But like still, if they do something and think of something, it's like he wants to take credit for it too. And that's what Emma Sullivan was just filming in general. And so you just see this, what is, to me, comes off as it is an attempt to be very... Oh, low key. I'm just this is just every day. But mm-hmm. he is acutely aware that cameras are on him. And it it is his main character syndrome, this Jesus syndrome. I'm the one that they need to send to space. I just want you to know I am a priority. And it's like you have to say it to convince yourself of it. He also told um, one of his volunteers, Stefan, who Stefan kind of chuckles like, oh, this is kind of just Peter being Peter. Peter is hard to read at times, which is true of psychopaths and so he he seems like he could be joking but also that he could be serious when he says 
this submarine gives us world dominance, we will be able to declare unrestricted submarine warfare against the enemy. Ha 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 ha. And you're like, and that, yeah, Stefan kind of says, huh, you should try that. Yeah. And Peter says, yes, they won't know us when we come beneath their launch platform. It's, it seems like, are you joking or is really, are you trying to uh, build kind of your own army around you and your own defense missiles because you got bigger plans. I think he's kind of trying to test the waters with some of the volunteers in saying these things. And m- almost all of them just kind of went, oh, okay, he's kind of wacky. Ha ha, yeah. what a weird thing to say. But if someone was like, are we going to blow them up? He'd be like, well, I do have explosives. You know, I think he was testing it in a way that he could pretty pr- plausibly go, oh, well, it was just a joke. Yeah. I'm not going to blow up anybody's pl- launch platform. But I don't doubt that he probably would have sabotaged or done that. Mm-hmm. It's like, I won't do it unless you want to. Are you down? Because I'm down. Right. I'm just seeing if you're down, too. Like, <laughs> no, but for real. Yeah. Sinisterhood will be right back. In 2008, Peter co-founded a rocket club called Copenhagen Suborbitals with Danish architect and former contractor for NASA, Christian von Binsten. A few years later, in 2011, Madsen got married. He later claimed to documentary filmmakers to have an open relationship. Very as little is known about his wife. She's never in any of the documentaries I've seen, and I haven't even seen her name in any articles. She's chosen to remain anonymous and private, kept her name out of it. I think it's like we were talking in a true crime headlines about that German case and German privacy laws. Anybody that's involved in a crime their last name is redacted, so mm-hmm. you only get like a first name, last initial. And uh, but I'll look it up for part two and see if Danish ha- the Danish privacy laws go into divorce, especially if there's somebody related mm-hmm. to a crime. By 2014, Peter's role at CS became limited. Christian told him he was to design rockets only, but was not invited to be a part of the launches. According to Peter, he was not given an explanation for the change and was furious that he had found himself in the position of having a boss tell him what to do. As Christian started taking greater control of CS, Peter left and created his own lab, just 85 meters, or 279 feet, away from the CS facilities in Copenhagen, called Rocket Madsen Space Lab, or RLM. Yeah, he took the... You you can and can't do this pretty hard when he said, I, now I have a boss? I don't think so. The closeness of these two places is insane. When you're you can't overstate the docu- it. I mean, it's like they're all on, they should just be one thing because that's how close they are. I mean, the workers like can see each other clearly. They're out in the same body of water, just feet away from each other, working on their own shit. So it's a big middle finger from peter to be like oh you're not gonna let me do this well guess what i'm setting up shop right next door to you Mm -hmm. so you can see that you didn't get the best of me and i'm gonna keep doing all this stuff and now it becomes this like space race between copenhagen suborbitals and rlm and copenhagen suborbitals for all we know is run by rational reasonable people i saw in a uh, a brief mention that some of the issues with the launch was that Christian and the crew was concerned about the type of fuel Peter wanted to use and thought you could go faster with a different type of fuel, but that's a very explosive type of fuel. Mm. So then you go, okay, well, it's marginally faster, but like enormously more dangerous. He didn't care. He just wanted what was whatever was fastest. So you start to butt heads and realize now from a CS perspective, you have this 
live wire loose cannon guy next door who's now trying to also launch rockets and have explosives right next door. The launch pad for the rockets on the water was not even 85 meters. It was like maybe it was maybe 30 feet. I mean, you could see you would be able to make out facial uh, like you could be able to make out the faces of people Mm -hmm. who were standing over there. It was like that close. It was it was wild. I was shocked at because I don't know meters just hearing 85 meters is one thing. But then when I saw it, I was like, this is so close. It looks like you said one complex. Like you, they could just put one big fence around it and just be a mega rocket. Mm-hmm. But no, they're like, oh, our fence is in the middle and we're going to make our own thing. And especially for a relatively small country to have two companies that are trying to do the same thing right next door to each other yeah. is fascinating. Yeah, I imagine, I mean, I know in the U.S. we have a lot of regulations over things like that. It's like Elon Musk is building his own fleet of rockets. Yeah, there's some oversight, though, you know, whether or not. Does it matter if you get fined for something if you're a bajillionaire? Not really. That's Mm -hmm. actually not equitable. There's no laws for really rich people. But in this case, the real danger is you have now a person who is just on his own. Like he doesn't have that. At least with uh, CS, you know, you're working with Christian von Bergsten. You have a team that you created. Now he's starting from scratch. It's just him. And he's the one that makes the decisions. And he's pissed. Peter obtained assistance and funding for his grandiose projects by spreading his messages online via YouTube, television interviews, and his TED Talk. Volunteers and interns came from all around the world to help him for no pay, while others sent money from near and far. Many enthusiastically dedicated their time, efforts, and money, hoping to be a part of history. Madsen told Emma Sullivan that RLM's mission was... To make dreams come true. I think Disney's got that one locked up. (laughs) And also, the only dream is his own. I think that the people that, in the beginning, started to help him, as far as they're portrayed in the documentary, they are... Loyal people, most of them pretty young. They are engineers or in school for engineering. Very smart. They, they're they excited. They've got that youthful hope that, like, I want to be a part of something big. I want to be a part of history. This guy is doing it. He's, you know, kind of rebelling against the norm and going on on his own. And we're going to be here starting from the ground up. And it's really sad as you watch the Netflix documentary to see them crumble as things start to come out about who their leader was that they really, you know, had on a pedestal and was their friend and confidant and mentor. And my heart went out to them because they, they were also completely blindsided and feel horrible that they didn't see signs of something. Oh yeah. We're watching it with the benefit of hindsight, but it's amazing that Emma Sullivan's footage captured what you, exactly what you said. They are, intelligent and aspirational and on paper back then he was on tv all the time Mm -hmm. he had this ted talk so yeah if you get tapped to go and be an intern at his place that's a huge career move that's something that you can put on your resume so i definitely get that underneath it all it was all for him oh for sure it was all for him but for them what they were told the story they were sold was you are going to be a part of history and you cannot blame them now looking back what he presented he was a master manipulator Mm -hmm. and con man yeah they and he was um kind of a celebrity in denmark Mm -hmm. he was very well known as an inventor and this eccentric figure so it if someone in your country like is pretty well known and you've seen 
evidence of their work that of what they can do like at CS it's not like you just ran into somebody on the street and they're like hey I'm building a rocket in my garage you want to come help like he seemed to have credentials and people felt like they could trust him I think the sub was the submarine is a good proof of I go down in this I'm safe I'm not you know it's not doesn't have any major structural flaws or issues so that is already proving that he has some ability and yeah he had students from like MIT from mm-hmm. other countries too but when you have that Already the cachet saying, oh, well, I have built this, this, and now this is my next project. We, the proof is in the pudding. Yeah. He's got something that already works. Yeah. Though the volunteers, some of whom were engineering students, seem skilled and dedicated, documentary footage shows things were not always pleasant working with Madsen. He was filmed using rough language and shouting at the volunteers at times, while other times joking around with them, praising them, and offering them advice. It's a very toxic dynamic he has with them which when you think of his childhood probably mirrors a lot of the same relationship he had with his father this um gaslighting and kind of like negging but then building them up with all this praise you keep them around and kind of keep them controlled and yeah you know you need them to work for you and so you have to be sweet and loving but i think the the real peter is when it shows him go get off of that stop doing it you're doing it wrong get out of my way when he he like turns it's his face which the alec murdoch trial there's a footage of him also crying and then you suddenly see a turn and then his eyes go like it's these micro expressions that are only going to be captured on footage slowed down later or looked at in hindsight where you see people are masking Mm -hmm. that he's putting on this like i'm the wacky rocket guy come on and stop it get over here and it takes this sinister term where his eyes change wow. and that's the real him yeah i think he does a lot of it too for the cameras it's very performative almost like well i'm gonna make a spectacle about how upset i am that this isn't going well to prove that i'm in charge and this is my passion when in reality he doesn't even like you said he's just going around like touching shit he'll just yeah. be like it's it's all for show. I, re- I mean, yes. I'm sure he knew, you know, how to do some stuff, but he's definitely depending on the people around him. But then he probably knows that they're smarter than him and he isn't really needed. So he has to exert that dominance over and over to remind them, like, I'm the one in charge here. Oh, yeah. You're here because of me. Yeah. It's very cult-like. Mm-hmm. He has a lot of oh, yeah. cult leader qualities to him. Charm him, lure him in, get him dependent on you, and then you can treat him how you want to treat mm-hmm. him. Australian documentarian Emma Sullivan began following Peter Madsen as early as March 2016 after watching his TED Talk on YouTube. She wrote to him that year, asking to make a documentary about his plans to become a private astronaut in his self-built rocket. He replied with a strange email that read in part, Emma, you are about to submerge into quite a snake pit. I am writing you from the inside of a mechanical whale, the ballistic missile submarine Nautilus. Tonight, she is my home, and being here makes me feel very safe. He went on to describe the Rocket Lab's volunteers and their camaraderie, agreeing that their story would make a great documentary. Yeah, I mean, that that was like half the email. The other half is a little more, a little less unhinged, but, but not much. And when it Mm-mm. starts off like this, this is, again, what I was talking about. Like, is he joking? Is he just wacky and eccentric? Maybe, but in with the benefit of hindsight, we see he's also 
a monster. And then when you read between the lines of all of this, it's very eerie. Yeah, so saying that you feel very safe in that submarine. I wonder if, and I don't wonder, I will say my opinion is that it is his method of manipulation and luring because he knows that Emma is a filmmaker, that she's looking for an interesting story to fill a feature documentary. And so I feel like you said with he was being performative on the footage. He's also being performative in this response of I am the the wacky, crazy, eccentric submarine mm-hmm. guy. Do you want to descend in the depths with me? That he almost puts on this show of what he thinks she wants to hear so that because he wants to get her there. I think it's that's like him with everybody in his life. Oh, yeah. He wants to say what he thinks will lure them there. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're into this kind of a strange story? I'll give you a strange story. It's a whole snake pit. Why don't you come film me? And then she she goes. Yeah. I mean, when we know all the dark demons that he's wrestling with, he puts on the complete opposite facade to the public. Oh, jokey, funny. Yeah. Uh, let stuff roll off his back like oh haha ha. oh well we'll just have to restart it over again like whatever and on the that's all just fake it's like he thinks that's how he should be acting yeah but like you said there are moments where his true nature comes out and those are very scary yes sinisterhood will be right back emma began filming madsen and his team in september of 2016 Madsen showed his space plans for his passenger ship under construction in his rocket lab to the film crew. The volunteers interviewed by Emma seemed enamored with Madsen's whimsy and willingness to break barriers. Sarah, one volunteer kept anonymous in the film, said Madsen was an artist who was impulsive and went with the wind. She said, He's definitely the most epic person you've ever met. Oh, Sarah. Oh, Sarah. And... Sarah will become an integral player in this entire thing. Um, This is the first documentary that I know of that I've watched where digital face reconstruction was done to keep her anonymity. And it's, it looks like, I mean, I don't know what she looks like in real life, but she looks Mm -hmm. like a real person in the show, which is a whole other basket of snakes yeah well if you're not if you haven't watched it it would be the equivalent of you know back in the day they would give you like a silhouette of a person Mm -hmm. and just you know this person's chosen to remain anonymous this they have full footage of her they're fully showing her and i wonder if she decided to become anonymous later on after they finished filming and this was a way to maintain the footage with her in it Mm -hmm. without having to just cut everything and just use voiceover for her but it looks like a deep fake if you've been on tiktok there's a fake keanu reeves a fake tom cruise they've put put a like deep fake face over her that's not her face so you're still seeing a person's eye movement you're still seeing them make expressions look down they blink but it's a digital alteration it's it is very strange but it's effective it is effective and i don't know if i had if i didn't know going into it that that was the case if i would have known it does uh, you are like wow her face looks a little blurry at times or like there is something like a little off at times for the most part you can't really tell no, I wonder how I'll, I'll ask Paris in the meantime how you would accomplish something like that. It was impressive. And mm-hmm. you said it, it at least salvaged all the footage and made it more interesting than just a voiceover. Yeah, she's such a big part of this story that if they had had to cut that, it would have been an entirely different story and not nearly as powerful. 
In footage shot in April of 2017, Madsen discussed the overarching theme of the documentary with Emma, telling her, We will either go down in history as the greatest heroes or the greatest criminals. You're going to die anyway. It's only a matter of how much pain. Your life will end in downfall no matter what you do. It accounts for us all. The only thing we can do is make a little bit of, you know, fun on the way to that downfall or to make the most spectacular possible downfall. It seems like this that he would say that in hindsight, you're like, oh, okay, Yeah, he's basically dropping these little breadcrumbs of maybe he hasn't completely formulated the plan in his mind yet, but it's there and he is things are in the works. Yeah, it's not a, I don't think anything is a impulsive decision as far as the general idea of what he wants to do and create violence and havoc. Yeah. One of Peter's volunteers, Stefan, told Emma that he truly trusted Peter at first before discovering. In reality, you learn over time that he's actually a great liar. On August 9th, 2017, Stefan had a strange encounter with Peter that he spoke about on camera with Emma. Peter brought up a website that compiled photos from murder scene victims, explaining to Stefan that it allowed you to see how they look like after such things. Peter asked Stefan if he was familiar with such a site. Stefan told documentarians that he was confused and asked Peter, Okay, what the heck are you talking about? Stefan went on to tell the filmmakers that it was just out of nowhere that he would say that. According to Stefan, Peter would often joke about machine guns and cannons and how he'd like to shoot a person or see a person die in front of him. Emma captured similar instances of Peter joking around about wanting to kill someone while making breakfast in the workshop one day. It's one thing if you say, oh my gosh, you got mud on the carpet, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. But if you say, do you want to look at crime scene victims of how murder victims look right after they've been killed? Vastly different. And then you yeah. also joke like, I'm going to kill someone today. Takes a whole different meaning. The uh, conversation when he's making breakfast in the workshop and there's a female volunteer with him who just kind of nervously chuckles the, in the entire time. Emma's kind of, you know, like 10 feet away filming. And he's just going off about what he, she's like, what's on the agenda for today or something. And he's just like, I don't know. Maybe we'll kill someone. Maybe it'll be you. I mean, he just says these like wacky things out of the blue and then he'll be like, ha, 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 ha. And it's like, oh, okay. so I guess he's kidding about all of this and and we can just lighten the mood. But nah, he's he's psychotic. Well, and I think you're very astute to point out and even think about who else was in the room. He chooses to say these things only to subordinates, only to people that are in a position of not that Emma is a subordinate in far as she works there, but she is a guest Mm -hmm. and the other woman is an employee. Stefan is an employee, a volunteer. Stefan is a volunteer. He's saying all these things not to anybody that is his power equal, but he's saying it to people with less power Mm -hmm. than him over whom he controls them and exerts power. And then... How else are they going to react? So he can literally say anything he wants because if they say, that's really weird and inappropriate, please don't say that to me. What's to say he goes, leave and never come back? Oh, yeah. I'm sure they get the boot. Yeah. And I think it's also, like you said, a way of testing the waters, but also consciously or subconsciously planting these seeds of fear in all these people's minds. Like, you should be scared of me. You don't know what I'm capable of. 
and also, I think he gets off on seeing people be uncomfortable and making them squirm. True. And if he has any uh, issue saying, oh, well, they don't want to hear about that. Well, they never told me they didn't want to hear about that. You know, he can lie to himself and say, oh, they were into the conversation because they laughed with me. I'm not doing anything wrong. They must. I'm not alone. They Mm -hmm. must have been into it because he knows that. Obviously, if you're trying to hide that and you only want to whisper it to one of the volunteers, have you ever seen one of these weird websites? Well, and I mean, Stefan said, like, he he says, I thought he was joking a lot of the time. Like, he, mm-hmm. he's just kind of like that. So, and, and none of the uh, female volunteers said that he offered to show him, like, hey, you want to come see some fucked up stuff on my computer? Would he send them texts saying, hey, you want to come down to my submarine? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, seriously, he would. Kim Wall was born in 1987 to parents Ingrid and Hokim, both journalists. Along with Kim's brother Tom, the family resided in Trailborg, Sweden's southernmost town. Those that knew Kim describe her as... Smart, curious, adventurous, and empathetic. According to The Guardian. Growing up on the shores of the Baltic Sea, Kim enjoyed collecting pebbles and walking the family dog, according to her mother Ingrid. As a teenager, Kim's interest in exploring the world and telling the stories of those she met along the way was piqued when she and her family began traveling abroad. Kim's passion for journalism allowed her to graduate in the top of her class from the prestigious master's program at Columbia University's School of Journalism in 2013. Both professors and peers recognized her brilliant talent. One classmate and friend told the BBC... What made her journalistic abilities so exceptional was that she looked for quirky stories, but with a bigger narrative. She reported them deeply. She never made a spectacle of the characters. Her reporting was rock solid. Indeed, Kim's desire to share the stories of those who often don't have a voice took her all over the world, including Uganda, Haiti, and North Korea. She was fascinated by subcultures, or as she called them, the undercurrents of rebellion, according to The Guardian. Her work as a freelance journalist has been featured in the New York Times, Harper's Magazine, Vice, The Atlantic, The Guardian, and many more. She won awards for her reporting on climate change and nuclear weapons testing in the Marshall Islands. She definitely seemed like she was willing to go the distance to get the story that nobody else was telling. Yes. Both her parents were journalists, so she grew up in a family where, you know, that was the norm. She understood what it took, and then... Traveling abroad, her mom said she just fell in love with, like, meeting people from all over the place and wanting to tell the stories of those whose stories otherwise aren't heard because she was really passionate about giving a voice to those that don't have one and would go to great lengths to get the story. Seriously, her friends from her journalism school said she just made it seem like traveling around the world was no big deal they said we would see her she's covering something in the marshall Islands. she's in the democratic people's republic of north korea she's in haiti she's here they said it just seemed like it was to her a part and parcel of the job well this is what i have to do mm-hmm. you go to the story to get the story and that's why her reporting was so excellent her friends was like she was beautiful she was positive she was wonderful she was funny and she took all of that not only from her you know she wasn't just like that as a person she was also like that as a writer and a journalist and a type of person that would ask questions and would try to find even in really 
you know, the, these situations where people are either suffering or they're under an oppressive regime, trying to find stories of hope, of joy, of change, of this is what we should be focusing on. Yes, you see this bigger picture, but here are these individual stories and why they should move you to change. And I think she understood the power of storytelling and understood that in order to tell it that way, that she was going to have to do it her own way, which involved taking photos on the ground. I mean, she took some phenomenal photos mm-hmm. when she was traveling. And then just sitting and you know breaking bread with people and being there and being an ear for them when nobody else was listening. Yeah, she reported with a lot of warmth and empathy. And that was just who she was as a person. Everyone said she was bubbly, that if you ran into her at a party, you would just spend the whole evening talking to her because... She wanted to know everything about everything. You know, she found yeah. a story in everything. She, um, when she was in school, her one of her professors said, like you said, going to, you know, knowing it was part of the job and going above and beyond. When there, the shooting occurred at the Empire State Building, I believe in 2012, she, instead of just calling to get information, went down to the site and was interviewing people there, you know, on the street. So even then she was like, I need to be in the thick of things to really experience it and be able to give the most accurate story possible. Oh yeah. On that front line. Yeah. Sinisterhood will be right back. Several months prior to meeting Peter Madsen, Kim had contacted him about an interview She was writing an article for Wired about the space race between RLM and Madsen's previous company, Copenhagen Suborbitals. Of all the dangerous places Kim's work had taken her, 30 miles away from her childhood home in Trailborg was the last place she or her family expected her to encounter danger. And if her beat as a reporter was researching and going to the front lines of stuff that is a larger narrative. Her mom said she had a fantastic ability for telling about small and big issues. And I think if you have, uh, you want to write a story about either the space travel in general, how the Danish government is or isn't investing in it on their own. Okay, well, the government's not investing in it. Look what happens when private individuals try to do this. Is this dangerous? Is this a great idea? Do we want this? And going there and experiencing when you see it on paper that there's two private rocket labs inches from each other. Mm -hmm. That's definitely something. And you're like, it's 30 miles from my childhood home. I know this. I know this area. This is the story I got to cover. And he had had many journalists on the sub before. I mean, even the volunteers said it wasn't unusual for journalists to be around and for him to take them out on rides. So, and she knows that. Yeah. And three different journalists they interview in the undercurrent said, I would have gone in in a second. Yeah. Every single journalist I've seen interviewed or one of her friends or um, that was also in journalism said, yeah, 100% I would have done that because it was what the story called for. Yeah, it was part of the story. And yeah. he, no criminal record. He has all these volunteers. A bunch of people have gone on the submarine before. She it, was just it, doing her job. Yeah. And in fact, it sounds fun. Yeah, it would be very interesting. Mm-hmm. Emma Sullen's documentary footage shows Peter in a tailspin on August 9th, 2017. None of his volunteers had shown up, which left Peter pacing around trying to continue his self-made rocket project. He expressed his frustrations at his volunteer's absence, saying, What's the fucking point? To make matters worse, Peter's rival, Copenhagen Suborbitals, had also planned a launch of its own, 
privately made rocket around the same time as Peter's launch and in the same location. And it was just weeks away. Yes. So they're all during this time that Emma is filming all of this. It's all leading up to this eventual rocket launch that is planned that turns out there's going to be two rockets that are tried to launch just in the same area. So, you know, that's kind of what the story became is this space race. But when none of his people show up because they're tired of being treated like shit and they've said, like, he doesn't really have control. There's no plan. It was like pulling teeth to get things done and, and keep on a schedule. He was eccentric and at times fun with them. But as far as like being able to manage people, it was a shit show. And when Emma's filming him in the room, it's just empty and it's him. And he's trying to stuff this parachute back into the bag. And you're just looking at him like, you can barely do that because somebody else always does this for you. And you're yeah. just doing this to try and prove to Emma and viewers that, like, you know what you're doing. You're Now you're having to do all this yourself. Exactly. That's the, the vibe you get is, well, I'm the only one that showed up today because... I'm the only one that cares enough. And so fine. But he's not making any progress. He's just jacking around with a parachute on a table, literally walking in circles. I mean, he's like circling the table and messing with the parachute. And I think you see that it really was just a house of cards the whole time that while Copenhagen suborbitals was a legitimate operation, had launched rockets before that he was trying to shoestring it on his own. And while he had really brilliant volunteers his personality and behavior was not conducive to this collaborative, creative engineering environment that you need. And so now with an announcement of we're launching this date and CS was like, we're also launching this date. And there it's very likely that theirs is going to go well. And now I think it has sunken into him when he looks around his empty lab, he looks at how behind they are that in three, four weeks, they're not launching any fucking rocket. And it, and it, that, well, what's the point? Da-da-da-da. He starts to spiral out. He's spir- spiraling out and getting all pissed off because the ultimate thing is to be exposed as a fraud and failing that locket launch is he's going to be exposed. Mm-hmm. On August 10th, 2017, at 11.52 a.m., Madsen texted his volunteer, Sarah, and said, We can go for fun in the submarine tomorrow. She's so nice right now. Sarah, who considered Peter a dear friend and confidant, Told him that sounded nice. Peter also texted journalist Kim Wall, inviting her for tea in his workshop. At their meeting, he offered to take her on his submarine that evening. Neither woman had any way of knowing that earlier that morning, Madsen had searched online for... Girl. Beheading. Agony. Well, at the tea as well, it's revealed that Kim is leaving to go to Beijing. Mm -hmm. She's got a going away party that night. It's kind of like last ditch. If I don't go on the sub tonight and finish up this, you know, I can finish the story, but without having gone on the sub, I have this going away party. I'm going to be leaving me and my boyfriend, fiance. We're going to Beijing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just like in three days. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he'd already set up with Sarah. Hey, tomorrow we're going to go on the submarine. And then... Sarah agrees, but it just so happens that the evening before, Kim says, oh, well, actually, can we go down tonight? Because I'm leaving soon and I need to turn in this story for the deadline. Yes. On the night of August 10th, 2017, Kim met Peter at 7 p.m. at the submarine. She had no idea he had preloaded the sub with torturous tools, including a saw, pipes, straps, and sharpened screwdrivers, plus a video camera. 
Earlier in the day, Peter was seen carrying a hacksaw made to cut wood onto the steel submarine. Volunteers thought it was strange in hindsight, but not at the time. Footage from that day shows Kim and Peter atop the submarine, waving to the camera on the dock as they headed out in the water. This footage and these pictures are devastating to see both of them standing up outside this sub and she's got a huge smile on her face waving to people on the shore he's kind of looking off into the water yeah and just looking at that and thinking what was going on in both of their minds yeah she's excited waving at the shore and facing the camera straight on his you can see a little bit of a profile but it's definitely more introspective Mm -hmm quieter and he had sent a text message to her and said the submarine is ready i'm just waiting for the reporter from wired talking about her i guess kind of in the third person and she's like okay great i'm on my way and she left her own going away party to go and do this that's dedication to the job Mm -hmm. right like this is my one chance i'm gonna go and again i'm gonna go out there we'll be out for a few minutes you know maybe a couple hours i'll be back we'll finish celebrating dot 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 Kim texted her boyfriend, Ole, from early in the sub-trip, letting him know that she was on board and alive. She then let him know they were submerging and would be unable to contact him for a while, ending the exchange with, I love you. Kim planned to be in the submarine for just a few hours. The couple had plans to meet up with friends after Kim returned to celebrate their impending move to Beijing. When she didn't return back to the couple's apartment that night, her boyfriend became worried. He contacted police around 2 a.m. local time on August 11th. Yeah, she texts him, you know, everything's ready. Uh, He brought cookies and coffee. I mean, nothing that... And she's prepared, right? They said that she had gone through hostile environment training. Mm -hmm. She had met face-to-face with warlords. She had, you know, been aware of violence against journalists that had gone on in the preceding few years. Specifically women. She was not naive to the sexism and misogyny in the journalist industry. Yeah, so I mean, so she says, oh, I'm on here. Uh, It's every precaution we would take, right, as women who navigate life. We say where we're going, who we're going to be with. We vet the person that we're with, spend time with them, check their background. And you think by doing all these things, like I'm rising to the occasion. I've done my due diligence as much as I can. Everything I can do to be safe. And especially if you get on board and it's like, hey, I have coffee and cookies, like, you just text your, your significant other, hey, love you, I'm about to go to work, I'll yeah. text you when I get out of here. So uh, that's the eerie part is just watching the dis- literal descent as they descend down and knowing or wondering when that's going to change. Yeah, it's kept me up at night. I'm not going to yeah. lie. I Just thinking of how long before things turned, yeah, it it can take you to a dark place when you start to think about that stuff. Around 4 a.m. that day, maritime rescue officials put out a call looking for the Nautilus since it had not returned to its dock. Footage from the day shows Peter's volunteers talking with one another and worrying about what happened to Peter, Kim, and the Nautilus. And this is just such happenstance circumstance that Emma Sullivan was there with her camera rolling and captures real-time reactions of all the volunteers going oh my god do you think Peter's okay he Mm -hmm. would have been back by now there's no way and then it just their natural the natural progression of what they think happened right you think anything else you would think yeah well this is a Occam's razor this is a self-made submarine it's very 
possible shit goes wrong and they're calculating like, okay, well, they've been down there this long with two people in that sub, this much oxygen is left, you know, and like no one would have thought anything else as things progress. People do get suspicious. Ingrid, Kim's mom said, you know, they got a call around 530 from Ole saying Kim hasn't been back. I've contacted the authorities. He had taken his bike and ridden all over looking for her down to where they were. He woke up Peter's wife to say, hey, do you know what's going on here? She didn't know anything. So they were all starting to, you know, to panic because they knew it was very unlike her and that it also. It's a submarine. Yeah. Shit can go wrong. You know, I mean, a self-made submarine in the dark waters. Yeah. With no, I suppose we were talking, you and I were talking about it when we were watching the HBO where it do- doesn't have radar on it. Like there's no tracker on it. It's not like if you have a plane in the sky and there's radar, you can see, okay, even if you don't have the tail number, if you haven't called down to ground control and said, I am Heather and I am flying this plane, they still see a plane and they know which plane it is because of a transponder. This doesn't have anything like that. So he is in the wind. That was my question. I couldn't. So he has no, there's no like radio system down there because they have audio footage of um, the whatever their equivalent of the Coast Guard, or maybe it is the Coast Guard, like trying to contact the Nautilus saying like, come in, come in. I didn't know if that was effect or really if they could communicate. You can have a radio. I'm just saying it's not the same as a tracker where you can see where it's at. So, yeah, if you say, hey, Nautilus, come in, we're not yeah. getting a response versus, OK, we're looking at this radar map and we see every single thing that's in this bay. Uh, yeah. And we know that's a whale. That's a sea turtle. That's a Nautilus. But they didn't have that. So they're just at the mercy of, hey, can you hear me? They might be too far deep. They might be too far out to even hear us. And that in and of itself, regardless of what's going on in that sub, is a frightening thought. It is, on the flip side, if you are a person who loved to maintain absolute 100% control, when he said, I'm in the, I'm in this whale, the, the Nautilus, and I feel perfectly safe and at home, that that's the perfect environment oh, yeah. for him because he controls how much you breathe, when you breathe, and also nobody can tell him where to go and where not to go because they don't even see him. And how long you're down there, mm-hmm. it's way down deep and no one can hear you. Yes, Sinisterhood will be right back. Around 11 a.m. that morning, Peter was spotted by search and rescue crews standing on the highest point of the submarine in the nearby bay waters. The submarine was sinking. Peter swam to the safety of the rescue boats. Once on shore, Peter told authorities a defect in the ballast tank caused the boat to sink, and that... Watching the Nautilus sink was very distressing. He said he dropped Kim off earlier in the evening at off and that he had escaped the sub alone. Meanwhile, expert submariners in the Danish Navy were suspicious. They could tell from the movement of the boat it had been sunk purposely. They encouraged authorities to arrest Peter. And there's footage of him. I mean, because it became a news story immediately because it is such a kind of bizarre thing to say we've lost a submarine with a journalist inside of it. And so there's news crews. So there is footage of him standing on the very, very tippy top waving and then jump off, swims away. It sinks. And then when you see him on shore, he doesn't really give a fuck about her, where she's at. He's very like, I don't know. I don't know who it was. I don't check the background of journalists. I just don't know. But I sunk my baby. Like I sunk my boat today. And it's like, I believe it was Emma who was down there, you know, because they 
they all get the call, like, yes. he's been found, and the volunteers, everyone are elated, because at the time, it comes through on the radio, both people are fine. Yes. Both the journalist and, because they just refer to her as the journalist quite a bit. One well, And the radio said, the submarine has sunk, but everyone on board has been recovered. Okay, yeah. They think Kim and Peter are both fine. So they're elated. They rush down there. Emma is filming from the shore and yells at him like, Peter, are, are you okay? And he turns around and gives a thumbs up. Yeah. And then just kind of walks off and they're getting him into a police car. And another reporter says, where is the journalist that was on board with you? And he was like, I was on I was on board alone when I was rescued. Yeah, I was the only one on board. Meanwhile, he's got blood on his face. Yeah. On his nose. Yeah. Peter was immediately arrested under suspicions of involuntary manslaughter. Kim was missing, and Peter claimed to have no knowledge of her whereabouts. The media descended on the rocket lab and began interviewing volunteers. One of them told reporters, The way I know Peter Madsen and the way he always acts, if she was on board when the submarine sank, I can guarantee that he would have helped her out first. And as of this point, he's saying, I dropped her off at this dock called Off Salon, and it's there go you know that's where she went There's and that's a restaurant where she was last. there that's yeah. i i haven't seen her since well guess what restaurant has cctv footage there's no such submarine just coming on up out of the water and uh, a young woman getting off a very first crack in his story but meanwhile the supporters say the volunteers are like okay well he said he let her off on land wherever it was let's start canvassing the area mm-hmm. so to their credit they start searching the area but then Emma says, oh, you're searching. And they said, well, yeah, because we have to clear Peter's name. So we've got to go out and find this woman because we have to help Peter. And like when you said earlier, it's a little bit of a cult-like mentality. You see these people have been sort of programmed and trained by their interaction with him of you have to protect him at all costs. I think they wanted to find her to, yes, clear his name. I also genuinely think they were very concerned about her and were um, really upset that she was missing and... You know, um, Sarah says, you know, I I walked down. um, I'm going to walk down this stretch of road because she might have walked back this way afterwards to get home. And maybe she fell and is injured or something. So people were genuinely concerned about her as well. They also wanted to clear their friend's name. Well, yeah. And I think you're right. They were just basically only able to go off of the narrative that they've been given. Mm hmm. Even in the wake of the charges, Peter's volunteers and interns remained supportive and in denial about his involvement in Kim's disappearance, in footage obtained by Emma. Meanwhile, authorities dredged up the sub and analyzed it. They also searched for any sign of Kim in security footage at the dock where Peter claimed to have dropped her off. There was none. Volunteer Sarah initially said she knew in my heart Peter was innocent. She and other volunteers focused their attention on finding Kim in an effort to help prove Peter's innocence. Search and rescue crews combed the bay where Peter had been found on both the Danish and Swedish side for any sign of Kim. Authorities were also unable to find either Peter or Kim's cell phones. Which I thought that was fascinating, and we'll discuss a little bit more in part two, the dual jurisdiction that because she's a Swedish citizen that the Swedish police just immediately get involved. It's not like you have to invite us over or whatever. They're just like, we're coming to search too. Mm -hmm. 11 days after Kim's disappearance, on August 21st, 2017, a cyclist made a horrifying discovery. A torso was found in the same Bay Area where Peter and the submarine were found 
just south of Copenhagen. The torso was identified through DNA testing and confirmed to belong to Kim Wall. Authorities said in a press conference that Kim's torso had deliberately inflicted damages that seemed to be for the purpose of allowing air and gases to escape to keep the body from surfacing. It was also weighted down with metal, presumably to ensure that it would sink to the bottom. The horrifying discoveries continued when divers found several weighted down bags in the bay containing additional body parts, including Kim's severed head. Initially, having said he dropped Kim off earlier in the evening, Madsen's story now changed, something that would happen multiple times over the following months. He now claimed the heavy latch to the submarine had hit Kim in the head, killing her, and that afterwards he had buried her at sea. What had actually occurred on the submarine on August 10, 2017, was beyond the scope of anyone's nightmarish imagination. So what do we think? Well, in this first part, I think it's interesting to note his descent, his where he changes in the footage, but also the stuff that remained the same. Because Emma started filming him pretty much like 11 months mm-hmm. before this incident. And it was through coming through that footage in hindsight and through Sarah going through her interactions with him through text message in hindsight. And it's it is going back and finding all these red flags that individually didn't seem to matter. And in taken as a whole, you realize it was telling uh, a story that none of us could have known. But now that we know it was telling us something and it just goes to show the the power of particularly in this case with women who are taking their story and what can we do to use this story to maybe put somebody away in this case or change the narrative to where it's more focused on Kim. So I think for us, we are going to see, especially throughout the next one, the vital importance of Kim's story, Sarah's story and Emma's story and how they coalesce to try and get justice. Yeah, I think... Obviously, Kim was beloved by everyone that knew her. She was a brilliant journalist who unfortunately was taken far too soon and had a lot more amazing stories to tell. That That's another sadness of this all is when people like this are taken from us, we miss out on the brilliance that they would have bestowed upon us by doing just their own work. And that's what she was doing. She was just going to work. She hadn't done anything that any other journalist wouldn't do. She did all of her due diligence to make sure that she was safe. And there was no way she could have predicted what was going to happen. Yeah, I think that's a general consensus for all journalists that have looked at this story have said she followed the book in every Mm -hmm. sense of the word. She did exactly what she should have done due diligence wise. And so when we zoom out as we normally do, once we see what happens at the trial, more information that comes out and paint a more thorough picture of Peter Madsen, then her parents said Kim had a fantastic ability for telling small stories about big issues. And hopefully her this whole incident, we can zoom out and say, okay, what is this bigger issue? Mm-hmm. What caused him to do this? What could we have done to prevent something like this from happening in the future? And taking that information that we have from this and all the heartache and the devastation from losing somebody not just in general but in a gruesome and brutal way which that's part two 
and where we have that immense suffering, what can then we do to synthesize that and maintain her legacy and then also just try to make the world a better, safer place, which by all accounts is what Kim wanted as well. Her family set up a memorial fund and scholarships for female journalists as well. And we will link all of those um, in our show notes for those that are interested and want to contribute to that. Because she was a bright, brilliant woman who had a lot more to say. So it's, I think it's always a nice thing for families to do to honor their loved ones, to help others that wanted to do those same things achieve those goals and hopefully be able to tell some of the stories that Kim won't be able to now. Yeah, foster and facilitate her legacy. Mm -hmm. Well, switching gears into a little different subject, Heather, in just two weeks, what will we be doing? Two weeks from now, we will be, it will be a full moon, I want to say that. March 7th, 2023, and no better way to celebrate the full moon than with the debut of our full moon energy tour it is our all new touring show we're going to bring it to tacoma first on march 7th portland oregon right after that march 8th and then we have several other dates denver salt lake city austin houston san francisco los angeles and more cities to come what all are we going to do christy oh we got um all sorts of lunar creepy stories and tie-ins and connections there's going to be some segments that involve the crowd some crowd work so even if you see a show at one stop because of the you know interaction and improvisation between us and the crowd they'll still be different there'll be some constants but the banter and whatnot will be different so (laughs) we're very much looking forward to it and kicking our Shows off in just a couple weeks, so go to SinisterHood.com slash live shows for information on all of that and to get your tickets. Also, VIP this time, you don't have to stand in a line to meet us for just a few minutes. We're going to do an intimate post-show 45-minute Q&A where you can ask us anything you want. We'll just chat. You also get with that a signed show poster, which we'll have for sale there, but they will not be signed. But with your VIP ticket, you get a signed one included and they're very cool as are the shirts that we'll also have at the venues for sale yeah go to sinisterhood.com slash live shows and get your tickets before they're gone we love providing sinisterhood to you at no cost so if you like what you hear consider supporting the show by donating to our patreon we're a small operation creating the show for you by researching writing recording and producing it ourselves any amount is sincerely appreciated and helps offset the cost of making and hosting the show. As a thank you, you'll also get some sweet perks like ad-free episodes, a Sinisterhood sticker, membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group for those in the Ruling the Airwaves and Getting Into It tier, a special shout-out on the show, a monthly bonus mini-sode, and patron-exclusive audio and video content, including Am I the Asshole, Relationship Advice, Judge Christie, Dear Sinister, True Crime Headlines, and more. Plus, our patrons in the Getting Into It tier are also able to vote on a bonus content segment that they would like to see us live stream. You also have the fun perk of access to our Discord server, where you can connect with other fans in real time and discuss the latest in true crime, share personal ghost stories, or just post adorable pictures of your pets. We hop on occasionally, and we host monthly Q&As on Crowdcast, where you can ask us all your burning questions. In February, the Q&A will be Thursday, February 23rd at 8 p.m. Central, 
And our live stream is going to be right after Docuary. So this Friday on February 24th at 2 p.m. Central, we're discussing Fire of Love. And after that, we're going to have our live bonus content. So head over to our Patreon and sign up for both of those. Yes. All three of those. All three. Got a lot of opportunities. And Docuary has been very fun and interesting. Um, this last one I'm I'm excited to watch. Uh, so and we're excited to chat in the chat with everyone else that's watched it and get y'all's opinions, too. It's been some of the most fun interaction we've had. Mm-hmm. For patrons not in the U.S., you have the option to pay in pounds or euros, saving you the cost of a conversion fee. Annual memberships for all tiers are also now available. Those that select this option will be rewarded with a free month of membership. For more details on all of this and specific member tiers, visit SinisterHood.com and click Patreon on the top banner. And make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout-out. So many of you have been tagging us in pictures of you sporting your sweet Sinisterhood merch. Keep those pictures coming. If you want to get some cool Sinisterhood swag like t-shirts, mugs, totes, and even clothes for your kiddos, visit Sinisterhood.com and click shop on the top banner. The best thing you can do to help us grow is like, review, and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please tell a friend who you think would like us to check us out. You can also share any episode by clicking the three dots in the top right corner and share topic-based playlists from Spotify by visiting SinisterHood.com slash playlists. All of this means so much to us and really helps podcasts like us get more exposure. Guess what? If you say, I don't know how to leave a review, what is that even? Go to SinisterHood.com slash review. It's linked in the episode description, and we'll give you step-by-step instructions on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, Podchaser, wherever the review is available It'll walk you right through it at SinisterHood.com slash review. There should be a link in the episode description. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at SinisterHoodPod and like us on Facebook at SinisterHood. We're on YouTube and TikTok at Sinisterhood Podcast. Christy, where are you at on the computer? I'm on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace and Twitter and TikTok at Christy or GTFO. Heather? I'm on Twitter at MCK versus the world, and I'm on TikTok and Instagram at Heather versus the world. As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for supporting the show on Patreon. Here are your special Patreon shoutouts. Jen Boyack. Evie Dare. Kieran. Amy White. Whitney Woodward. Marie Cheer. Jules Tree. Kayla Fluger. Carolyn Selleck. Jamie Hewton. Laura Fox. Julie Stockholm. Sophia Wood. E.P. Shannon Arcos. Elizabeth Allen. Allie Hume. Ashley Blackburn Hawks. Vicki Patilla. Thank you so much for supporting the show. We could not do this without you, and we love you so much. We hope you pronounce your names correctly. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep it creepy. Wahahaha.